Mr. Timothy Flanders. Welcome on to Talking Catholic. How's it going, man? It's going good, brother. How you doing, man? Yeah, good to see you here. Hey, I, um, I bumped into you on Twitter. I don't know how, but then I, I jumped over to your YouTube, and you know, of course, I start started um, internet stalking you, and um, and I really like what you're doing. Um, this is Timothy Flanders, as I told you guys in the introduction. Um, he he has a postulate mean the meaning of Catholic. It's just meaning of Catholic, and uh, you can find it on YouTube, you can find it on Twitter. He has a, a, a dot com associated with that. What are you what are you doing over there? Tell us, talk to us about that. Just introduce us to your apostolate. Yeah, so the apostolate is meaningofcatholic.com, and it is dedicated to uniting Catholics against the enemies of Holy Church, and that's a phrase that comes from the old litany of the saints which is a petition to humble the enemies of Holy Church. And at the time, they're talking about, like, Vikings and whatnot. But in, in our day, we know, we know we have many enemies, both within and without the Church. And from my view, I think there's a, lot, there's, a lot of, there's a lack of truth and there's a lack of charity on both sides from different parties among Catholics. And I think, especially on the Internet, you just get a lot of uh, lack of charity. Uh, you know, just people can say whatever they want to without consequence. And there's uh -huh. a lack of clarity. And, and in the Catholic faith, we have a great deal of clarity on a, a great number of things. And so the, the, the apostolate is dedicated really to truth and charity and trying to create a place where we can, we can have a, some clarity on a lot of things uh, and also face a lot of difficult issues together, but with charity um, to come together and understand that we have uh, a lot of common enemies a lot of Catholics mm -hmm. are fighting each other instead of the enemy. So um, yeah. there is a, a strong militancy to it, uh, but also a very strong emphasis on charity. So okay. that's what okay. we're all about. I mean, if Catholics. That, that's that's a big thing right there, man. That's that's what's the what's the what's the what's the most challenging of, the, of those two? The uh, proclaiming the faith, the truth of the faith, or um, or promoting charity. <laughs> what's more challenging oh <laughs> uh, that's I, I mean i think it's charity because there's so much i mean i was i remember i was talking to taylor marshall about when what what are the what are the things that the church has not already clarified i mean i think there's a lot of doctrinal confusion nowadays but even the things that are confusing even today i mean i would i would say 90 95 percent of those things are already I mean, if you just look up the right sources, you you can find out what the actual doctrine is. You know, the, I mean, right, people right. are the only reason it's confusing is because people just don't read the catechism or, you know, other catechisms or, you know, documents and things. Um, so that a lot of that truth can be clarified. Um, mm -hmm. I, there's certain things like certain uh, new moral questions turn, concerning maybe new technologies or things like that. Like we haven't quite worked out yet. OK, but that's in the minority. So I think. The truth part is not not as difficult, really, as the charity. I think the charity is is much more difficult because it's uh, it's all about part of it is determining what are the essential things of the faith okay. and which which of those things are the non-essential things. And there's also a spectrum and, and a gradation between those two things. It's not just all essential and all non-essential, but there's sort of things mm -hmm. in between as well. So. Because I think that's that's another aspect of charity is that it's being able to recognize that the, these matters, X, Y, Z, Catholics can actually disagree about those and they're still fine, good Catholics. You know, we can disagree about right. you know, tax right. policy or something like that. Whereas on, on A, B and C, we cannot we cannot disagree. We have to all be united on abortion, et cetera. You know, yeah. so, uh, yeah, I think charity trying to illuminate those aspects uh, that's that's the difficulty. I had um, I was talking to Steve Sojek on this show man a few years ago, and he um, he manages um, one Peter five, and he and I were talking about the problem of anonymous Catholics, right, and how they evaporate the situation that you're talking about, how they could just say anything they want to without any consequences whatsoever. They can operate. Um, blogs or YouTube channels and not use their name and just throw Monkoff cocktail bombs at issues and just blow it up. Um, 
What's what's I mean, that's where I'm kind of at on the issue because I, I, I mean, these anonymous Catholics, I don't know if they're Catholic or not. Um, they could be Protestants. They could, you know, they could be operating in sales. I don't know. They just sometimes <laughs> just terrorists. I don't know. But what, what's your thought? Do they do they do you think? And I'm being, you know, pretty extreme because I'm sure there's some that do a lot of good charity work. I mean, some say some nice things. You know, I'm thinking of a couple websites off the top of my head that, you know, they don't throw bombs. But what's your what's your thoughts on the anonymous Catholic blogger, YouTuber? Well, I think there's probably different motivations and intentions for the anonymity. So, I mean, some people may just I mean. The Saints always wanted to be anonymous, for one thing. I mean, they always wanted to be, you know, they start, they, wow, I have a Sigmata. God, please take this away and make me anonymous, you know. So they wanted to be anonymous. So uh, there's probably, so I know um, there's at least one blog I can think of at the top of my head that's kind of anonymous, that's that's just straight up, this is all about the faith and just doesn't, I think, I think some people want to just fade into the background. You know, they just don't really care about being the center of attention and that's a that's i think that's a difficulty because then you got to deal with pride and vainglory if you're putting yourself out there and you're putting your name out there so that's sort of you can you can avoid that but on the other hand obviously if you're anonymous then you can just be a total troll and have fun with that so to speak and uh commit all sorts of sins against charity and and just sort of make a bunch of laughs or whatever so (laughs) Uh, I mean, I think the majority, unfortunately, is in the latter category, not in the former. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, social media is such a I, I mean, I, honestly, I, I wish <laughs> it'd be nice to not do this apostolate online. I mean, it'd be great. I mean, there's, there's so many pitfalls to the Internet. I mean, there are there's so much great potential. And I mean, yeah. I. We'll, we'll get into kind of my story because p- part of that has to do with me connecting with people on the internet and being converted oh. that way. So, I mean, people okay. can be converted and I certainly, I'm a testament to that. So the, there's a great, great wealth of information as a great resource. Cause you can connect with people all across the world, which you can't, can't do with that te- technology, but there's so much potential for evil that, um, and, and, you know, these things are just designed. I mean, social media is designed by people designed that to psychologically manipulate the human soul to just make profits. I mean, they, and they, they admit this, there's a video on YouTube of one of the Facebook creators. And he just said, well, we, we were trying to find a way to manipulate human psychology so that people had the dopamine release when they clicked all the like buttons, you know? And so people just get, get addicted to this thing. So then they can, you know, get revenue from the advertisers and everything. So it, the whole thing is designed to just addict you. And Mm -hmm. I think that people are, when people are anonymous, I mean, yeah, what's their goal? Are they just trying to get all these great dopamine releases because they get all these likes and they make all these great jokes? Uh, you know, whatever. Yeah. What, what's their whole goal? I mean, it, it, you don't typically really you you almost never interact with other human beings anonymously. You always share your name. That's the first thing you talk. You meet somebody, yeah. you share your name. You, you yeah. And this is the normal human being way of doing things. So. I think there there needs to be some sort of grave cause for you to not use your name in some you know extreme situation. I don't know whatever it may be. So I I, I think that it's uh, spiritually perilous. I think it's uh, social media is such a like I said it can be so bad that it's going to get worse if you're anonymous and you're just here for laughs and likes. <laughs> yeah 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 something. Yeah, that's um, man, that's a great apostle. I want I want to bounce back to that, but you mentioned just now that you were um, there's there's an intersect here with your your faith journey. So take us back to the beginning, Timothy, and um, what's what, what's your faith background before you up to the point that you became Catholic? Yeah, I don't know how much detail you want to get. I'll give you the short story, and you can ask questions from here, I guess, um, <laughs> because so I'm I'm I was raised. Uh, evangelical Lutheran, which is to say, basically a a liturgical evangelical is what that means. Uh, okay. Like the, there was pretty high liturgy liturgy for Protestants, uh, like a weekly communion and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then high school, I became a Baptist, so I, I got baptized okay. again because I didn't believe in my infant baptism. I tried <laughs> to speak in tongues unsuccessfully. Um, I became a non-denominational in college. 
always kind of seeking for the truth and just it just didn't add up to me that that our our you know church was made in 1500s with luther it just didn't make sense since there was this big gap in history uh so i I, that actually led me to messianic judaism for a while i was very much into that because that that seemed to answer some questions but then that didn't add up yeah who are some uh, of the people why 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 you're let me pause there for a second who are some of the people who um attracted who 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 you're attracted to in in the messianic jew community some of the teachers well i i think uh well i mean the guy what's his name david david stern Okay. He, he's the main guy who who did a a translation of the New Testament. He yeah. which is sort of a Jewish ism. Mm-hmm. I mean, this you, you familiar with Stern? Yeah, I have his book. Yeah. 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 Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he has he has an. I mean, this this one's the uh, Jewish commentary on the New Testament. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. I mean, there's a lot of I think there are a great deal of insight that can be can be made. I you know don't get me wrong here, but there there was a there is sort of among Protestants, um, there is a great fascination for rabbinical Judaism, and many Protestants. I was back in my non-denominational days. I was a big fan of Rob Bell. Here's a big confession. Um, <laughs> Rob Bell was all about rabbinical Judaism. It's all about the rabbis and what they were saying all this, and yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's a great kind of trick that 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 you miss. Because you think that the rabbi, the rabbinical Judaism as it exists, is sort of the original Judaism, and right. to a, to some areas it, it can be said, but in other areas it's not. And so the yeah, David Stern um, brings out there's a, I mean there's a f- there's certain cultural things that you can get out of the Gospels when you look at certain yeah that's things, a great book I which mean, are I still reference it today I mean yeah. That's, yeah it's a great book like I, yeah I remember he was when our Lord says. Uh, is thy eye evil because I'm good? And David Stern talks about how this is like the evil eye and all this like stuff that you you may you not even you know the church fathers might even miss that because they're not yeah. thinking about it in, in this other way. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I was really drawn to that because it, it did it did make this claim to be the original church. And and in honesty, there is I mean, there is a strong there's a really huge. I mean, this is really the the original theological controversy is over the law of Moses. That's right, the, right. The very first big controversy, and it never really was uh, resolved in such a way that there. I mean, there were these other Jewish Christians that uh, Justin Martyr references and others, where there's these other observant Torah. Jew Christians somewhere that are kind of that kind of die out and they're kind of unknown and mysterious. And so the and then the church makes several different pronouncements about the law of Moses, which are interesting, too. But I mean, basically, the the, the long story is um, it, it just attracted me because of the it's it's claim to authenticity to yeah. this. Uh, they, they asserted that, you know, Jesus Christ was an Orthodox Jew and he observed all the mitzvot of the rabbis and whatnot. Yeah. Which, is, which is kind of true, kind of not true, but um, so it is. I think it's a very compelling thing, but there's very serious problems with it. Uh, yeah. One, they don't have they don't have a priesthood. <laughs> right. <laughs> they don't have a temple or yeah. a sacrifice, and so yeah. the whole. I mean, rabbinic Judaism, as you probably know, is is an entirely different religion than the Judaism of our Lord right. in his day. Right. They had priests. They had the Levitical priesthood and everything. Mm-hmm. So you could follow the whole law of Moses. And that was really what struck me and what ultimately caused me to not follow through with Messianic Judaism. And, and I actually it uh, ended up among the Eastern Orthodox. I became Eastern Orthodox. Oh, oh. And, I think that's a good, I think that's a good transition. I think that's that's good. I think when I was when I was in my conversion process, right before I really started looking at the Catholic Church, I was there with um, rabbinical Judaism. But after a while and seeing the rabbis really don't agree on anything, I just realized I'm really a Protestant with um, a Jewish perspective. <laughs> and so, but that's interesting. You still stayed in the East. Yeah, it was. Um, that was my one of my first exposures to um, the mass was actually I was actually in Egypt. I was among the Coptic Orthodox who are not oh. Eastern Orthodox. There's a schism there. Eastern Orthodox and Oriental Orthodox. Um, And 
it, it actually it just kind of happened. Uh, but I also bought into a lot of the anti-Roman arguments that they had at the time, the Eastern Orthodox. Oh. I okay. think, I mean, really among the non-Catholics, the Eastern Orthodox really have the best case against the church out there. I mean, I think that's the most coherent, the most uh, plausible, I think, and the most challenging. So I think, uh, so I, I did buy into that um, and I did spend time as, so I, I actually was chrismated, so I, I was confirmed as an Eastern Orthodox. I, wow. um, so then I was, I was that for a number of years, but then that, Again, that it was actually um, that also did not begin to add up because I began to see the the inconsistencies with the Eastern Orthodox churches that was not what they said it was, uh, because what they'll do when they convert you among the Eastern Orthodox, they will assert that the Eastern Orthodox Church is one church. It has one doctrine. Uh, it, there's a great deal of unity, but all of those three things are incorrect they're inaccurate as to the actual state of things okay and i began to realize this and and just to sort of realize how great their the anti-roman prejudice really does exist among the eastern orthodox to the point that they are really inaccurately representing roman catholicism because of this bias and so but did you have any prejudice before did you have any anti-catholic prejudice yourself coming up as a lutheran and then it seems like you're doing a lot of things just to avoid Catholicism. I mean, are you intentionally? Yeah, you know, I didn't I didn't really get it. I was giving you the shorthand. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's it is kind of interesting uh, because, I mean, my parents have always been very open minded. And even, uh, this whole long journey I've taken to Roman Catholicism, they've been very open minded to everything along the way. And they are not anti-Catholic Protestants. They're pretty, you know, this very, very positive Protestants. I mean, um, yeah. And but for some reason, when I became a Baptist in high school, I just became very anti-Catholic sort of automatic. It's like it was an intuition. I don't even know where it came from. It's just kind of an American cultural thing. I don't know. But I, I mean, I, I can guess that, you know, Roman Catholicism and this is what I found with Eastern Orthodoxy is that the institution of the papacy and the magisterium is what checks and challenges human pride. And so being prideful and wanting to be a Protestant and wanting to be my own Pope, I am going to attack any authority which seeks to undermine my own authority. And so I think that sort of on a spiritual level, I see happening as a Protestant for the very beginning that, you know, getting really into reading the Bible and thinking I know the Bible. And then as an Eastern Orthodox, thinking that I know all the fathers and I know the proper doctrine and orthodoxy and, the Pope has usurped uh, his own, usurped the authority of the church. But what I really meant internally was he's usurped my authority to, mm. in, uh, you know, inter- interpret the fathers. So because we see Eastern Orthodoxy, you've basically got Protestantism plus the fathers. So you you you're your own Pope and you can then just decide what you think all the fathers say just read all the fathers and saint augustine and saint well maybe not augustine but chrysostom and basil and everybody read all those fathers and then you as you know get your phd in patristics and then you figure out what the doctrine is of the eastern orthodox and that's kind of what you're left with when you're trying to get into these controversies and so um i think that the uh when i sort of when it dawned on me that i had not even really given Roman Catholicism a fair hearing as an Eastern Orthodox. That was when I, I was, I, I did connect with some Catholics online who were willing to patiently explain to me some basics. Uh, one of the, one of the biggest, uh, the big light light bulb for me was finally understanding that the Pope is not above tradition. He is okay. its guardian uh, the Pope exists in order to preserve and guide, you know, guard the guard, guard the tradition so that it is preserved and, and make and make a final ruling on disputed questions if necessary. But that's the purpose of the Pope. And so the basically the tradition, meaning scripture and tradition together, sort of, um, you know, the deposit of faith is the authority in the church and the Pope is its guardian. And so that was the light bulb for me, because. Every non-Catholic, pretty much, you'll ever talk to, 
unless they're very, very objective, <laughs> thinks that, you know, they think that the Pope is, is pretty much this, uh, when they think, when they hear, hear Vicar of Christ, they think he can change the Ten Commandments, you know, so that type of thing. Yeah. So getting, yeah. getting that out of the way helped me understand. And then experiencing Eastern Orthodoxy firsthand helped me understand how much the Pope is needed, just sort of on a very practical level, how much is needed yeah. to actually govern the universal church. So 2013, shortly after Pope Francis was elected, I became Catholic and I have all my striving and wrestling has ceased. I, I just really haven't dealt with uh, the type of doubt and anxiety or whatever that I've had since then. It's just been, well, now I've got the church and now I can just work out my salvation instead of working out all these theological things. So, yeah, that's the story. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the interesting turn because I'm, what I'm hearing, I mean, there's a lot of layers of what I'm hearing as well. I mean, the first thing that I'm hearing is, um, I mean, I guess I pose it in, in a question because you're going from, I mean, you're in your youth. You, I mean, you're at the uh, Lutheran and you're Baptist and non-denominational and it, it goes on until you, you come home. But what were you in search of? What were you looking for? I was looking for the truth. I was looking for something that that really resonated as authentically true and was not a pretense. Um, I was looking for Jesus Christ uh, to know him, to love him, I guess. Uh, This is something that I think drove me to investigate and understand the these different doctrines and made me understand that they didn't add up. Uh, I, it was just, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't be satisfied until I was in possession of the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's it. And so you couldn't find that anywhere else. You, I guess, I mean, truth is there. I mean, there's, I mean, what, the, what you found in the Catholic church, is obviously the fullness of truth. And what you found in those other places were, um, portions of some dim light here and there, but um, what other aspects? So you're definitely in a search for for truth, but I'm also hearing some appreciation of liturgy. I mean, as a, as a Lutheran, as I mean, obviously in the Eastern tradition. I mean, you're talking about. From you know, from my from my opinion, some of the most beautiful liturgies that's ever been composed. Um, is that is that important to you, the liturgy? Oh, definitely. Uh, I I was initially uh, I was actually one of the attractions to Roman Catholicism was Gregorian chant. Oh. I actually wanted to. I, initially, I was a, as an Eastern Orthodox. There's there's actually such a thing as Western Rite Orthodoxy. It's it's sort of the counterpart to Eastern Catholicism, and it's very controversial among the Eastern Orthodox. And there's only a num there's only a handful of parishes in the United States, but they they so they have the actual Western. What they actually have is they have the Tridentine Latin Mass, but it's in English. Okay. So they'll have the, the all the same trappings and then they'll have all the chanting is in English and everything. So um, I was very attracted to that movement within Eastern Orthodox. And it was, and it was very much because being raised Lutheran, there was a certain amount of liturgical formation though, you know, fragmented and dim, there was a certain amount of liturgy. I mean, we had Advent and Lent and yeah. some liturgical, practices among Lutherans. And so I was formed in that. And that was my cultural heritage. Obviously, I'm from a European ancestry, and it was strongly a part of me. And it was it was actually a I mean, I love the Eastern Orthodox, right? I love the Byzantine, right? But ultimately, I I, it just wasn't my culture. Uh, I was not connected to that culturally. And I, I, I very much more connected with the Gregorian chant, the Gregorian Western music, um, as a just a cultural thing, um, I think a great deal of it also was, I mean, coming from the it, when you're a European ancestry American, 
you know, you don't have any culture. You, you're, you're, you know, you ask what your race is on, on the census or whatever, you, and you have white, and white is not actually a culture or a race or a, a nation, you know. So, so you have you have nothing to go on, and uh, I think a lot of Americans have this. I mean, but but you have, you know, you have many other races have a certain cultural connection to their place of origin, yeah. but um, the Anglo-Saxons um, consciously broke from that, and so. Uh, getting back to my roots as a sort of a Northern European cultural identity is part of that is reconciling with my roots as a Roman Catholic. And um, the liturgy is the central part of that. That's, that's really everything. And I was initially coming to Rome. One of the biggest reasons or one of the biggest motivators was I was seeking out uh, Latin rite monasticism. I was okay. I was going to actually I was seeking to be a Medi- Benedictine monk at the time. Oh. And uh that was before I met my wife, so the rest is history there, but um <laughs> I was very much attracted to the divine office and I had started praying actually the the Benedictine divine office while I was Eastern Orthodox. Um, yeah. And I loved the the divine office. I I had um gotten a Latin mass missile and read through that all the time as an Eastern Orthodox. I, I watched Latin mass, uh, broadcasts and yeah. I just, lo- I loved the, the Western liturgy. And that was, that was, that's a big attraction as well. So the liturgical aspect of it is, uh, yes, very central to that. Wow. Old journal here. That is something I didn't expect to hear that. That's interesting. Um, you know, liturgy, used to be a um, quite a fluid thing. I mean, there, there was a point in time before the mass at Trent where liturgy was many. I mean, it, uh, you know, religious orders had their own liturgy. Cities had their own liturgy. There were just many different liturgies. And, of course, we take that for granted now, of course, because when, um, you know, the mass at Trent comes, which you call a traditional mass comes, liturgy moves from something that is, that is, is something that, the word liturgical enculturation was something that wouldn't be be a bad word back then because liturgy was just it was more organic. But then, you know, the master trend comes and liturgy becomes an export. We begin exporting liturgy, a very ancient um, form of worship common at that day became to be exported to different parts of the world, regardless of culture, regardless of nation, regardless of, of anything like that. It was liturgy was exported. I'm not passing judgment on that. But what you said brought, you know, brought up to mind because you found um, a, a connection to your culture, your, 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 from where you descend from, um, in the liturgy. Do you? I think last year the issue came up with what's a bad word now, liturgical enculturation in regards to the Amazon Senate. And there are some people who felt that the people, the people of Amazon, they deserve their own form of liturgy that's representative of their culture. Putting all that back together, what, what's what's do you do? You, what's your, you know, what's what's your perspective on liturgical enculturation? Is it something that people deserve, or should we just stick with what we have? Um, in principle, there's always been liturgical enculturation. Because there's obviously an Eastern rite and a Western rite. So there's already a cultural sort of an inculturation there right there. I mean, we just celebrated Pentecost, which is where the Holy Ghost speaks in all sorts of languages. And so there, even though Latin is sort of the the main language of the church, per se, there's still I mean, there's Greek, obviously, is is also sort of an official language as well of the church. Um, And not to mention Hebrew, but then there's also these other languages that are spoken by the Holy Ghost at that time. And so the church is understood to be sort of a multilingual uh, thing from the very beginning. And so you have and you already we already have 24 Catholic churches within the one Catholic church, 24 different Mm -hmm. rites, plus other rites there, even in the the Latins, there's, you know, the Mozarabic and the um, Gallican rite and all these other Western rites, too. So. There's always been a a liturgical enculturation, so there should not be a should not be a problem in principle with the concept of a certain amount of adaptation to a, any given culture, because that's always been the case everywhere in the history of the church. So mm-hmm. I think we should we should all acknowledge that. But the process of 
I mean, and this is this is really the difficult part of converting a culture is preaching the gospel to the culture, converting them to Jesus Christ. And then when you baptize a culture, there are things that need to be rooted out of the culture, like demonic elements and things like that. They need to be rooted out and just destroyed. And then there are other things that need to be just stay the same. Like, you know, you speak the same language. There's no reason to speak a new language or whatever. Um, but then there's also things that need to be taken and transformed into something new mm. to conform it with the gospel. And so the process of the medieval Christendom was a process of enculturation because you're taking all these <clears throat> barbarians, my ancestors, who were terrible barbarians who did terrible things, and you're trying to make them into knights in shining armor. And the church did that by an enculturation process, by um, – gradually getting them to that point where there was a certain cultural ideal. And so I think in every, and, and even when the Rome, like you're talking about when the Roman right was standardized into just Roman and they were, you know, they were, they were bringing it throughout the world. Um, there, I mean, there, there needs to be a balance between a certain amount of standardization because the, I mean, you can argue, for example, like what happened in China with, um, now it's, I'm losing the the name. Was it uh, Matteo Ricci? I think. What? So, I believe it was Matteo Ricci. I'm not I'm not uh, fuzzy on some of those details, but there, he was converting the Chinese or working with them to convert them, and he was trying to advocate a Chinese right of some kind to work on some of that. But then there was some controversy because back in Rome they thought they were they were con- canonizing Confucius. And so they thought they were adding Confucius to the calendar. So then that was a big controversy, and they, they got that condemned. But then the the subsequent efforts to convert the Chinese after that enculturation con- controversy uh, were not very successful. So th- and there's a lot of different factors there. But um, there's also it is also the case, however, that there has been a great deal of enculturation. Like I, I um, the Spanish Empire throughout the world was able to transplant the Catholic faith into these various cultures from the, you know, the Mexican and the South American to the Philippines. And they were able to plant some culture in among the people and the gospel with a standardized Roman rite. But I think one of the aspects of this, that what we get lost is to, which is lost to us post Vatican II is the devotional life of the faithful. There, there is a great deal of devotional practices that are all in the vernacular that are all culturally sensitive to what other cultures are doing. So there is a certain amount of universality mm-hmm. in the Roman rite where they're, you know, doing Latin mass. But then there's also a great deal of um, cultural uh, distinctiveness too with the devotional life of the of the faithful. So uh, there there needs to be a balance, obviously, because uh, you know the type of thing that's getting promoted now is just sort of even Jacques Maritain, the sort of the architect of Vatican II criticized Vatican II in 1967 and says that it said that it was like kneeling before the world. And that's what, that's what we have, like what the Amazon Senate is that we're not, we're no longer trying to baptize these people and save their souls. We're just right. kneeling before the world. And we're kneeling before these noble savages who, and we're saying that they don't even need baptism. They're so wise. And so we're just going to adapt everything to them. So we're not going to root out evil customs. We're just going to change everything and, and adapt everything as much as possible because we don't want to offend anybody, offend anybody's culture. So that type of thing is just this sort of pantheistic, Teilhard de Chardin, uh, you know, kumbaya celebration. <laughs> and it's not the gospel. So um, so I, I there's definitely a balance, I think, because there is that on the other hand, there is that sort of extreme um like there's no enculturation whatsoever. And I, that's, I think that's also an erroneous view because that's, that's just not historical. There's certainly amount of, certainly an amount, like you pointed out, even in the West and the Europe, there was a great deal of diversity, yeah. um, which, which uh, to a certain extent was perfectly orthodox and fine, you know, these local customs and things like that. So, yeah, I think there's a balance. That's a really good question. And I think it's a difficult one because it, it also needs to w- be worked out on the local level to a great extent too. Um, so that's hard as well. It's hard to, it's hard to regulate a global church with billions, a, a billion people in it, you know, different <laughs> cultures. So, yeah, but culture is, is a great interest of mine. I think it's a very important 
subject to address and try to work through with the gospel. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, yeah, man, you brought up some really good things there. I like how you really made that distinction between what is properly enculturation versus syncretism. I think what we saw in, in like you said, Amazon Senate was close, much closer to the, well, at least what they were talking about was syncretism, right? Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, what would be orthodox enculturation. Like, this is a topic that, um, that, you know, I've been talking about on my channel in regards to um, Catholicism as is liturgy, as is practiced amongst uh, predominantly black Catholic churches, which is really a, really a small percentage. I think there's maybe like three million black Catholics in, United, in the United States. Uh, maybe like 23, 24 percent of them belong to what is the historical uh, black Catholic church. It's predominantly black, mainly in cities. A lot of these churches were started up. I call them Jim Crow Catholic churches because they, they were started up with the intention of segregation. Right. Um, after Vatican II, there is an effort amongst a lot of these churches to um, in, change the liturgy in a way that was more reflective of the black experience in America, which at that point in time, we're talking about bringing black Protestantism into the Catholic church with certain types of songs, you know, this things and that. So, so yeah, this is a conversation I, I you know, I, I've engaged in, you know, quite often from that perspective, but it's so interesting to hear from your perspective um, how you were attracted to the liturgy and um, yeah, man, it's really it's a lot to think about there. Yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, yeah, there's definitely a lot of I. That's that's really been uh, such a, I mean, uh, such a flashpoint of American culture is is the the African and the European cultures clashing, not only because there's this obvious this obvious racism. And there's these structures of racism and all sorts of different things going on and bloodshed and all that. But there's also a, a very difficult cultural tension where, you know, the Europeans and the Africans don't even understand each other's culture. There's just yeah. a, a it's a strange world to each other, you know. And, uh, yeah, that comes out like in like in the music or whatever. Um, and it's I mean, this is the legacy of all, our own our own cultural conflicts. Um, but the question of culture is such an important one to understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you said you're married now, right? So yeah. you're married now. Oh, you guys have yeah. kids yet? Yep, we got kids. So was your wife, was she Catholic? Yeah, she was. Yeah, we met at, uh, she's a convert as well. We met at uh, oh, yeah? our parish. She was running one of the young adult groups for like post-college people. And, uh, yeah, she converted to the faith a year after I became Eastern Orthodox, 2011. Wow. So she she came into the faith, and uh, so we have four children in our family. At what and, point uh, of the journey did you meet? Oh, it was, it was real early. I, I started going to the Catholic Church before I was Catholic. I was still Eastern Orthodox at the time when I met her, and I yeah. was a part of this. I was a part of this young adult group as an Eastern Orthodox just getting okay. to know people for a while. And so, um, yeah, we got to know each other and, you know, like the rest is history. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the monastery was not my destiny. Yeah, so, that's awesome. Yeah. So ultimately, where do you want to take your um, apostolate? What's, what, what do you see going on? Well, I, I'm just a layman trying to do my best to for the church and, provide for my family so whatever whatever works i i I did just i just signed a book contract with tan books um so i we released uh these two books so there's this is the book i released last year introduction to the holy bible and one of my collaborators kennedy hall has another book on masculinity um but the book i'm writing now is is called the great catholic modern disaster uh it's the great liberal Catholic disaster. Why conservatives and trads must unite it. And okay. it's a, it's a cultural history from 1776 to the present, which analyzes the fact that the Catholic church has been trying to figure out the global liberal revolution, meaning the Democrat 
Democrat uh, democracy yeah. uh, revolution since 1776, trying to figure out how to deal with that world that has been created. And the church has gone back and forth with that. And we are now in a period where the magisterium is basically testing out an experiment of working with this world. Um, and after testing out an, an experiment of completely not working with the world and kind of both of which have more or less failed in, in certain degrees. And so analyzing that is basically the, the theme of this book from a cultural history perspective. So looking at the, the culture from the politics and the economics, particularly, particularly the family and looking at how a lot, a lot of this has to do with economics and economic policy. And those are the things that a lot of things that Catholics, good Catholics can disagree on is economic policy. And that's one of the things that's difficult <laughs> to wade through. So, um, I'm, uh, yeah. What do I hope for? I guess whatever I can give to the church and my family, I will do. Um, I hope that this book is is uh, helpful to somebody and um, and the apostolate. I, I've uh, gained collaborators. I, I, I'm enjoy. I've enjoyed getting to know people online and uh, working <laughs> with other people that I've met yeah. to forward this mission of of working together for unity against the enemies because we're there's few shepherds who are at least at the Episcopal lover level um, that can uh, sometimes it, it, it sometimes the lay folk sometimes feel alone. And yeah. Uh, yeah. we want to try to keep the faith, pass it down to our children and continue to have hope in, uh, in the faith and in the church. So that's that. I guess my, my only hope is that I, my work helps us all pass down the faith to our children so that our children can then do the same for their children. That's the hope. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. The loneliness of the laity because of the absence of the father. There's um, <laughs> a whole topic in itself. What is your, um, so when is your, your book plan to um, be released or, or do you have a, some sort of time frame where you want to be at? Yeah, it's the plan is next summer or fall for the next release. summer or fall, 2021. Yep. Okay. Okay. Well, I will be on the lookout for that. I'm definitely going to have have you back on to run through that with you. So that's going to be that's definitely going to be exciting. So yeah. Thanks. So we're at that part of the show, Mr. Timothy, Timothy Flanders of meaning meaning of Catholic.com, where I call five questions and five answers so not a fancy name to this part of the show it just kind of says what it is so i'm going to ask you five questions and we're going to see how you do okay all right uh, <laughs> fire away <laughs> so the first one may be easy who's your i don't know it may be difficult for you because you have a diversity of experience um who's your favorite catholic saint uh that's that's a, ter- that's a terrible question i <laughs> I can't answer that. Uh, I mean, the the first, I, I mean, what I, I have to fall back on Augustine, basically, because reading his confessions is what was one of the crucial books in my conversion. And uh, feeling his devotion and humility while pursuing the truth was, there's really no, no book out there that's like the confessions. And so... It's definitely a just a unique, powerful, amazing book. So I love Augustine. Uh, I definitely am devoted to Augustine. And uh, I don't know if I can call him my favorite saint because, I, I mean, I have so many other saints that I love, too. <laughs> yeah. uh, but that's the first one that came to mind. So I'll, I'll go with him. Yeah. What level did you connect with confessions is as far as what party? You know, some people like my friend. Ezekiel, he was he's a I mean, he's, he's still a, a Calvinist for some reason. But you know how those some of those guys, you know, they they, they you know, Augustine, Augusta, Augustine, Augustine is what they call him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so uh, no, yeah, he connected with he connects with um, August St. Augustine just because, you know, he thinks he's this horrible sinner, which, you know, Calvinists would because they don't know whether they're going to get to heaven or not. Right. They just don't know if they're they're you know, they're part of the elect. But <laughs> which level did you connect with 
with, with um, confessions. I mean, to me, it what struck me so much was the height of his intellect combined with the depth of his humility. Wow. And those two things are rarely combined. Yeah. And when so when you have those two things combined, that's what makes a great saint, and that's what really uh, struck me. I, I talk about it in my book on the Bible and just how Augustine, part of his conversion is actually reading St. Anthony's life and how St. Anthony's this illiterate, you know, Egyptian guy who's just in the desert and he's has surpassed everyone in holiness. And Augustine is this super bright rhetorician and he's got all these answers to everything, but he just gets struck in his heart because the... I think his phrase, I think, for the confessions is something like the unlearned have grasped higher learning or something like that. You know, and so that for me, that was big in, for my journey, because for so many years before I came to Rome, I was exalting my own learning above the truth, you know, and, and wanting to be in control of the truth yeah. because yeah. of my learning and using my learning for that purpose. But then with the magisterium, I can then submit my learning to the the church and have the church judge it. And that's a great comfort for me because I no longer have to be my own Pope. So yeah, St. Augustine definitely uh, showed me that in a confession. Yeah. I can see that. And if you're possibly, I can see that too, that you can be an erudite, but also you can, um, that you don't have to weaponize your knowledge. You know, that's, that's a beautiful thing. What's the last piece of clothing you bought yourself? <laughs> Uh, I, I get a lot of hand-me-downs from my father-in-law, so I, I, I don't actually honestly buy a lot of clothing. Uh, let's see. I mean, I think I, I think I bought, um, I think I bought this wedding shirt that I'm wearing. Uh, <laughs> That's the first thing that comes to mind. I'm, I'm sure there's I've, – I've, I've bought socks along the way. But, uh, oh, you know what? I, I – okay, I, I there's a T-shirt. There's a few T-shirts that I got last summer, I think, when I was vacationing with family. Okay. Oh, so oh yeah, I'll vacation go with shirts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that has the name of the island on them. Yeah. <laughs> that was always good. You right. usually get three. You usually get three of those for twenty dollars from you know. Uh, the first, the, the who's the 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 first person you would like to see in heaven? So that's besides Jesus. And okay. Yeah. That's right. that's, yeah. <laughs> besides Jesus and Mary. Okay. This is really that was a really Joseph? trick question. You okay. answered the question right. <laughs> uh. Mm. I guess I'm I'm uh, the first one I go to is St. Anthony of Padua uh, yeah. because I've just been I, I actually just kind of sort of I, I just randomly grew a huge devotion to St. Anthony of Padua <clears throat> while doing this apostolate because I was just sort of entrusting a an unknown thing to God. And, and just I just latched on to St. Anthony of Padua and asked him to find for me uh, what I needed to make this thing successful for God. So. I would say St. Anthony. I, I love St. Anthony. He's the hammer of heretics, but he's also, you know, in your tomato garden. So yeah. that, that's a beautiful yeah. thing right there, I think. So, yeah, that's true. Favorite theologian? Uh, I mean, living. I living li, living. OK, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would probably say uh, Father Chad Ripperger. Oh, yeah, wow. I think. Uh, yeah, I think I've seen on your YouTube um, selection, you have some uh, at least one video about him, I believe, right? Well, I, I'm just basically getting. I mean, he's the. I mean, I'm sure there are other Thomists out there. I mean, Taylor Marshall, my friend, um, I've worked with. Obviously, he's a Thomist theologian, and he does a lot of great scripture stuff. I love, I love Marshall's scripture stuff. He's one of the best scriptures scholars out there that i love yeah he's, he's definitely at his best when he's teaching scripture that's that's yeah. for sure yeah he, he's got a lot of great stuff there um and ripperger i think just has the erudition with philosophy that uh is 
and bringing to bear a lot of the sources that are not read anymore in seminaries, like um, these these Latin only sources that are are no longer sort of been abandoned. And mm-hmm. so bringing to bear a lot of the moral theology of the church and that type of thing that's that's lost. So I, I really I really appreciate him because he's one of the very few. I mean, he's the one of the few priests who knows enough Latin to even read all these sources. So that is uh, one of the things I appreciate about him. And he's able to bring that to contemporary issues and be a pastor. And so I, I would say, yeah, leaving theologian Chad Ripperger. Yeah. You like a lot of smart guys. That's pretty cool. Um, if you have a power, if you were to have the power, right, the superpower of invisibility, where is the first place you would go? Superpower of invisibility. You're invisible now. All right. Let me put a time limit on it for a half an hour. What's the first place you go to use this power? I guess I would want to do something that <clears throat> I'd want to do something that I I would want to do something that's really good, but happens to be very public. Hmm. So the invisibility would allow me to be, do it privately. So hmm. then, uh, so it'd have to be something that uh, I don't know. I'm thinking of. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is when the Lord says. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. So doing some sort of charitable work that I have to do publicly, ah, but then I can do it visibly. I don't know. I'm not sure what that would be, though. Um, ah, I see where you're going with that. I see. But uh, but that that well that just but saying that just now on YouTube just negated everything. So that doesn't <laughs> <happen> anymore. <laughs> So I don't know what I was thinking by saying that. But, uh, I mean, there's always so much you can say on YouTube because you can't say I would rob a bank because as soon as an invisible man robs a bank, they'll come find you. Right. So there's only so much you can say. That, anyway. that is a stumper, David. You got you got me stumped. I don't know. <laughs> sure. Well, Timothy Flanders, thanks for coming on Talking Catholic, man. It's a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me, brother. Yeah. Station. So until we talk again, we're definitely going to talk again. Um, you take care of yourself, man. All right, brother. You too, man. All right. Thanks a lot. All right. Adios.